0: It's a a joy to be here. Next week, I'm taking my family home, uh, back up to my parents' house, and there's something about going home that's familiar, even though things change. I love going home, and for me coming here, it's coming home. Uh, This is a place that I love. This is a place that I learned. Uh, I graduated here 18 years ago, and then worked a couple years as a resident director in Hotchkiss. Anybody still in Hotchkiss? Yeah. And I was replaced by a guy, guy named Siona Savini. Anybody heard of him? Yeah, less and less now. I guess that's what happens. Uh, and, and I always tell you, in my time here uh, at this college, it used to be a college, uh, is, uh, is I learned... Uh, to have a passion. It helped grow my passion for God's Word, and I say that literally. I know that word gets thrown around, but when I grew up, I grew up in a church that had an allegorical view of interpretation, and so when I came here and realized that I could read the Bible literally, and it meant what it says, and it says what it means, it just opened the doors for me to understand who God is and who He is in Christ. I also learned about relationships here, through student life and interaction and living life together, I learned to live out my faith in a relationship, not only with God, but with each other. And I will tell you, I, I've carried those principles, those things I learned here, into ministry for the last 14 or 15 years in Simi Valley. Uh, this is a familiar place. Uh, it's changing. Things are changing. I mean, we used to have to sign in for chapel, like with a pen. Oh, wait, you still do that, right? Okay. <laughs> Uh, some things don't change, that's good. So things are changing, but this is familiar. And I want to just talk this morning, I want to press on a little bit uh, for the next few minutes. One of the things I've learned in pastoral ministry over these last years, and and it's pretty simple, uh, but it's something that affects us all, and that is the fact that life is hard. Life is hard. If you haven't experienced the hardness of life, you will. So this morning may be preparatory for you. Others of you, when you carry in you what you're going through right now in circumstances, or maybe by choices you've made, you carry around this, I, uh, this understanding that life is hard. And it's not going to get easier. And how we respond to the hardness of life, listen, will either undermine or underline what people see that you believe about God. They'll either undermine or underline what you teach about God's Word. And so there's a reason why life is hard. If you think about it, even beyond the choices that we make, uh, life is hard yeah, for several reasons. The first is this, is that we have unfulfilled expectations of life. Uh, Unfulfilled expectations, we all have those. We all have this view of what we thought life was going to be. Uh, High idealism, especially at this stage, I was highly idealistic in college, of what I thought life was going to have in store. And when expectations are unfulfilled, it can lead to frustration, bitterness, and anger in our hearts. A lot of us think that when we leave here, we're going to do something of significance. We're going to have a following. We're going to be unique We think that we're entitled in a a weird way to be married or have a good job or find a good church or have a house. I know when I left here, I had high, high, high expectations of God's church and the people in there, and I've realized that the church is still filled with broken people, and especially older people who don't always get it the way I want them to get it. And when expectations are unfulfilled, it can it can give way to a lack of thanksgiving, to complaining, or even doubt. We live in a broken world. Uh, that was, that was, remi- we were reminded of that this last week in Simi Valley. All the hills around Simi Valley burned. We had people evacuate in Thousand Oaks, where so many of our students would go, and they, at our church, they're allowed to do the thing. Yeah, you, can you do this? No, okay, anyway, I'll share it anyway. Uh, uh, students at our church, our college group, can dance, and so they'd go to this da- dance. Pl- they'd go to this dance place. <laughs> it's maybe my last time here. Anyway, that, that's fine. That uh, and 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 a gunman came and and shot up the place, and 12 people lost their lives. We're reminded in a stark reality that that we live in a broken world. Our bodies break down. The system breaks down. I'm feeling that. I just turned 40 this year. I'm starting to feel the effects of the breakdown. The only one who their body doesn't break down is Harry Walsh. Harry Walsh just keeps getting younger looking. The more, it's just, he's not here. We face opposition. When you leave here or when you are here, you're going to face opposition. and, And it's one thing to face opposition that you can see, but so often opposition are those subtle things, and they come from places that you don't expect. I faced opposition not from external places, but often within our own church, and that makes it hard, it's hard to navigate those waters. And on top of all that, we live up to the call of the gospel. We live up to the call of gospel. We can easily be lulled into thinking that the cost of the gospel is minimal, that following Christ will allow us to keep the status quo, or that we can have the benefits of the gospel without any pain or sorrow in life. And here's how those all come together. Here's how those coalesce together sometimes and are problematic in our thinking. We think that somehow subtly in our mind that everything will work out for us, that we could have some amount of of security and comfort in our lives and still live a life that's going to be glorifying to the Lord. Right, so suddenly we get lulled into that trap, and then what happens is God says, I want to change you, I want to transform you, and so I'm going to turn up the heat on your life. I'm going to bring trial, and suffering, and waiting, and pain, and persecution, and disappointment, and then what happens is when those things come, and we're not ready for them, or they come, and we think, why is God doing that, and our expectations are dashed, we respond in fear, in doubt, in depression, and joylessness, and even a down co- uh, countenance, which leads us to having no motivation, giving in to fear or losing courage. Our hearts are melted of our strength, or they're hardened against thinking that God is mean and unfeeling and uncaring. And so often this pattern is repeated. It's why I laugh when I hear churches talk about how awesome life is, right? Like life is awesome and ministry is awesome and, and things that should be this, this extravagant kind of thing. And that has definitely not been our experience in life. God shows us his goodness and glory in spite of the hard. In fact, he uses the heart to accomplish his purposes in and through us. Scripture does not separate our our mission from our pain. He doesn't separate our mission from our pain. The confidence in the gospel with the cost of it, the hope we have in what God is doing while trusting him in the midst of grief and pain. So that's where I want to focus on this morning. If you are facing this kind of pain or or this realization of the hardness of life, where do we find, where do we find hope, confidence, and motivation? And I, like I said, for some of you, this may be preparatory because you go, well, life's not really that hard right now. It will be, it will come. And so what I want to do is turn to, with uh, if you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, is in the middle of some amazing things that Paul talks about when he talks about ministry, and he brackets this chapter with the phrase, We do not lose heart. He says it in chapter 4, verse 1, he says it again in chapter 4, verse 16, bracketing this, We do not lose heart in the midst of the hard. And Paul, you'll remember, is a perfect model to talk about this idea. Because if he's going to talk about not losing heart, we look at his life, and if there's anyone who would have lost heart because of the hard of life, it was Paul. He came to Corinth preaching a distinctive gospel. You remember he said, I'm, I'm going to determine to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. I'm not going to go with the cultural norms. I'm not going to try to do what other people, other false preachers are doing. I'm just going to stick with Christ and point people to the cross. Not only was that revolutionary, Not only did that have effect in raising dead people to life, not only did that have an effect of, of turning people from darkness to light, but it spurred all kinds of opposition and pain. He faced affliction. He was utterly burdened beyond strength, and he despaired of life. He believed he had a sentence of death. He faced opposition to his message of salvation in Christ alone by peddlers of God's word, those who preached a different gospel, and false apostles who disguise themselves as apostles, trying all the time to discredit Paul, trying to chop his legs out from under him. If that wasn't enough, on top of that, Paul had suffered from the hands of others. He received beatings and shipwrecks and dangers and stonings and sleeplessness, hunger, cold exposure. He was whipped and often near death. All of this unwarranted, all of this uncalled for. On top of that, he said he had the burden of anxiety of all the churches. And then if that weren't enough, God seemed to say, that's not enough for you, Paul. I'm going to send you a messenger of Satan to cause you to dog you, harassing him and tormenting him. And at that point, I say, what is going on? Isn't all that other stuff enough? Why in the world would God do that? Especially Paul himself pleaded three times, God, take this messenger away. It's too much for me. It's not helping me. Is God sadistic in that? But, God, but Paul then understood what was going on in his life. He said that God was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God so that on him we have set our hope He says, God did this to keep me from being too elated in myself, and to show my grace is sufficient for you, and for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's why at the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul could say this verse that we know very well, and we've recited often, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, hardships, persecution, and and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. How in the world can Paul say that? I don't know about you, but if I examine my life and I had to walk through it, Paul walked through with all of those things done to me circumstantially to come out the other end and say, yes, but I'll boast in my weakness, I'm not sure I could do that without what we look at this morning, without what we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which is in the middle of this this section, which is power-packed with what Paul clung to. So let's Let's walk through that together. Turn, if you didn't already, to 2 Corinthians 4.1. The first is this. Paul talks about things that are better. We have something better, and the first thing is we have a better ministry. We have a better ministry. This is why he could cling to hope. It says this in 2 Corinthians 4.1, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. What drove Paul? Why why did he keep going? Why did he put up with persecutions and sufferings? and, And why did he put up with that? Because he believed and knew that he was given a better ministry, a new covenant ministry. If you look back in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, there's some distinctions about this new covenant ministry. The new covenant ministry wasn't external, it was internal. The target for new covenant ministry was the heart of man, it was personal. Paul says, I'm not looking for external accomplishments to to put on my wall and, and show what I did. My means of success is to show in people that there are individuals that have been changed by the gospel. That's my measure of success. It was transforming. He believed in a gospel that transformed, that literally raised dead people to life, he believed in the power of the gospel, that it wasn't just getting the gospel right in word, it was seeing the transforming power of the gospel at work. And so he, he that drove him, that motivated him, that, that taught him to believe that that's what his life was going to be about. We've learned uh, in our church experience, we've learned that uh, sometimes I wish, I wish we see like masses of people come to know Christ, but that's not always how it happens, but we've, we've, we believe in the transforming work of the gospel in the sense that we try not to give up on anybody. We keep praying for people, no matter what circumstances, no matter how down the path they are of sin, that you don't give up on people. There's a friend of mine that a few years ago, uh, he had left his wife, divorced his wife, left her with two little kids. He went off and caroused with other women. Meaning, he was living with them, sleeping with them, and all the while said, "Hey, I remember he told me." He goes, "No, but I'm a good dad." By the way, okay, this is timeout. This doesn't count. I wish, I wish, in 1 Corinthians, First Thessalonians 5:14, right? Uh, I urge you, admonish the unruly, really help the uh, uh, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. I wish, in there was. Slap the stupid. Okay, that's, that's right, like, like man, help the weak. Slap the stupid. Be patient with them. Like, I wish that were in there. I'm looking in manuscripts early uh, to see if that's there. If it's there, let me know. Man, let's, let's publish that bad boy. Okay, but, okay so, so when people make those statements to you, you want to slap the stupid. And yet, here's, here's what God did. God did in his life is one day I said he woke up, and he woke up. One day he woke up, and he had a desire to go back to church. He had a desire to reconcile with the Lord, with his wife, and we got to do his remarital counseling and his remarriage. All the while thinking, there's no way this can happen. There's no way you could bring this marriage back together, let alone reconciling families who are ready to, you know, kick them, kick them down the road. The, the work of the gospel is transforming. It's, it's what Paul believed him. It's what drove him. It's why he didn't give up or lose heart. He says in 2 Corinthians 3 that we're sufficient. We're ministers of the gospel with full sufficiency. We're competent. We're not sufficient in ourselves. We're made sufficient by God, and it's interesting that I find in the church that most times when people have a hard time entering into discipleship relationships or evangelism, they don't feel adequate. They don't feel they're trained enough by the way, when you leave here and you go into churches, you are better trained than 90-some percent of the church people that are in there. Don't ever let lack of sufficiency, it doesn't have to do with your personality, even your training, or that you're good at verbal judo. You don't have to have those kinds of skills to be a sufficient minister of the gospel. It's It's what drove Paul. And lastly, here it says that we're ministers with undeserved mercy. That we're a recipient of mercy, we don't get what we deserve, and it's out of that mercy that we minister. We minister humbly and dependently. Well, he goes on to say that we have a confidence despite the long odds. Look at verses two to five. Says this, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Here's, here's the confidence that Paul had in the gospel. Not only that it was transforming, but that we are not, he was not looking to be fancy with the gospel. Creative, yes. Understanding of people, yes. Do we approach people uniquely? Yes. Do we, do we have many avenues where we can bro- broach the gospel of people? Yes. Do we try to get fancy with the message? No. And in this case, he says that the the devil is actually blinding the eyes of people. You know why that Satan blinds eyes of people is they're blind to the truth, and they're grasping for anything else to answer their hardest, most longing questions. One of the things I found in doing uh, gospel ministry in Southern California is it's not the physical needs that, that broach the gospel most times with people. People have tons of stuff. It's when it all falls apart that the gospel becomes real, it's when their marriage falls apart. It's when it's when their kids start to go off go off the rails because they, they had this picture perfect view of what life was going to be. And and when it all falls apart, now they're open to the gospel. And what I found after all this this even this shooting in Thousand Oaks and the fires, everyone is looking for somebody to blame. They're looking to to blame somebody, and and if you could tell them, hey, here is hope, is we can blame everybody else except dealing with the own evil that resides in your heart, they'll listen, and so we don't get fancy with the gospel. We enter the gospel into the condition of people, and that's why he goes on to say, we believe the gospel speaks to the conscience, speaks to the conscience, What does that mean? It means we unleash the truth. We believe that every person has embedded in their DNA an understanding of the law, an understanding of right and wrong, and they understand in their own heart that they violated God and his law. They just need to be reminded of it. And lastly, to make sure that we're not preaching ourselves, to make sure we're not preaching some some version of idolatry and giving people what they want with their idols, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. What's the test for how we know if we're preaching a full gospel? The answer is, are we preaching Christ Jesus as Lord? He is Lord. He is Master. We're not just offering Jesus Christ as Savior. We're saying, He is Lord. He is Master. He is Ruler. Philippians 2 says, because Christ was obedient to take the form of a servant and take on flesh as a man, God gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess he is Lord. But there's more comfort and more motivation still. Look at verse 6. We received transforming light. It says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Light of the gospel has changed our heart. We have tasted it. I love this analogy. Uh, uh, you, we all start with a heart of stone, right? We, ha- we start with a heart of stone, and something miraculous has to happen to move a stone into flesh, and uh, it's, it takes a miracle to move stone to Plato, but that's what God does. He moves our heart into fleshly moldable things because He has shown us our sin and shown us a Savior. So now our hearts are pliable. Our hearts are pliable and responsive to God's Word. We're responsive to Him. And it's interesting, by the way. That when you continue to sin, and you sin, and you sin, and you don't repent, that heart of flesh, even though it's flesh, can get covered in layers of fat. And if it gets covered in layers of fat, just like an unhealthy human heart, all of a sudden now you're not as responsive to God's word. You're not as responsive to him. And so what do you have to do is you have to repent of that, you have to move back and get into a healthy diet of intake of God's word and exercising his word and obedience and pretty soon now your heart is healthy again. But not only is the light of the gospel that's changed our heart, the light of the gospel came in the face of Christ is now we can see Christ. What drove Paul, what gave him confidence is that he could see Christ. He could see God in the face of of Christ. It means that we are totally dependent on Christ for salvation, but also now gloriously happy in him, because we cannot lose him, or to say it better, he will not lose us. I don't think I can say it long enough, or, or as many times enough, is that how do, we, how do we get above circumstances, how do we get above the hard, is that we relentlessly and we re- recklessly look at Christ. We look to him, and when we look to him, we know that that relationship can't be taken away, and we can move beyond the hardness of circumstances. Well, all that was kind of just where I want to get to in these last few verses. Go down to chapter 4, verse 16. All that sets the table. We don't lose heart because we have a better ministry. We don't lose heart because we're not trying to get fancy with the gospel. We don't lose heart because we have Christ, But he brackets it on this last because we have a new nature. Look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. Why do we have to go through such hard things? Why doesn't God just smooth the road? Why doesn't God just heal people when we want him to heal them? Why doesn't he just make it easier? The answer is the transformation that God is working out in us that he began when, he, when we were saved and will complete until he returns. Do you know what that reminds us of? Listen. Listen. In a, in a time when you are, you are striving after significance to do significant things, in a day when you can judge yourself by how many people are following you on different social media sites and, and how many people know about you in this world and what significant things you've done, listen, remember this, that God is more, it's more important, God is more interested in who you are than what you do. He is more interested in who you are. And that is why, because I've wrestled with God in this this line of thought, it doesn't make sense sometimes that you take away the physical capacities of people when if they were healthy and they were of the right mindset, they could do a whole lot more for your kingdom. Doesn't that seem to jive in our minds? There's a weird economy of, of size and scale that God has. Some of the best. Some of his best, he's taken out and and given pain and take them out physically. It doesn't make any sense, but it does make sense when we realize that in transformation, God is more interested in who you are. He's more interested in your heart than what you can accomplish for him. In a day that's striving to be significant, the significance we have is we are Christ's and he's, he's uh, transforming us in our inner man. And there are two really joyous yet hard-to-swallow realities as we counsel our own heart through Scripture as our body and this life is wasting away. As our body's wasting away, we, we remind ourselves of two things, is that when circumstances hit that are hard, we are always doing these two things. One is, one is, we're saying God I need to examine my life, and I want to ask the question, what are you doing? What are you teaching? What am I supposed to learn in this circumstance? There was an old dean here uh, when I was a student, and he used to say, I've stopped praying that God would bring financial security to my life, and I actually started to pray that God would keep me in financial straits as 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 long as he needed to so I could learn all the lessons to depend on him. That's stupid but it's great, right? In other words, God, don't bring me more money than I need, don't bring me, but just keep me, keep me dependent on you in finances all the time so that I'm never having too much or not enough, I just have enough to depend on you. We wanna view every circumstance, every situation, every heart, examine our heart saying, God, what are you doing? What are you teaching me in suffering? And the second is this, and maybe this is harder, if we treasure Christ, and if we believe in the nature of the gospel, that the gospel transforms in our inner man, it secures us eternally, it means, it means that we can live foolishly and accept circumstances foolishly according to the world. I sat with a, a woman, my wife and I sat down with a woman in our church, and unfortunately, this scenario, I wish we isolated, but this scenario is becoming more and more prevalent in our area. And it's, and it's the same old story where she uh, married a man who ended up being a fool. And uh, he spends his days and his money uh, living on the porch of their house, and he spends his money on, uh, on marijuana, apparently. And, and he doesn't lead, he mooches off of her money, he doesn't lead the family. And she came over, and, and my wife and I got to counsel with her. We got to walk her through uh, the goodness of God, and the purpose of marriage, and, and the whole idea of suffering in the gospel. And at the end, she asked the question that so many people want to ask, right? It's like, is there an out clause? Do I have, do I have an out? Is there a biblical out in my marriage? Can I, please, please, is there any way to get out of my marriage and still glorify the Lord? And what was the answer? The answer was, there's none. She left the house after three hours. I slumped on the couch. I looked at my wife, and I said, if the gospel is not true, we are sadistic. We are sadistic. Because everything in my my flesh, everything in my emotions want to say, please leave him and you'll be so much happier. Get out of there, get out of there, and, and life will get much easier. And yet we do things in suffering, we do things in circumstances that the world looks at and say, are you guys sadistic? And we say, no, we actually are joyful in Christ. And when God is doing these things, when he's putting us through suffering and through the hard, he's doing it, there's great meaning and there's great purpose behind it. Lastly, look at verses 17 and 18. We are preparing for an unseen, weighty future. We have a new nature, but we're preparing, he's preparing us for something that's weighty in the future. Verses 17 and 18. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What is God doing? Why is he so slow? Is he even listening to me? Sometimes we don't have the answers We just came off a a time in our church, we don't necessarily have, we have the big answer of what God is doing, we don't have all the little answers of what God's doing, and listen, by the way, when you're counseling your own heart and counseling others, it's better not to answer the question than to answer the questions wrongly. When we try to fill in the blank artificially, it loses hope for people. When we tell people, don't worry about it, life will get better, we actually discourage them and bring them less hope. But notice what Paul does here. What, what does he do when he's talking about the affliction that we face? What is he talking about when we're t- facing these external things, these momentary afflictions? Notice how Paul undersells the pain he faces. He undersells it. At first glance, it may not seem not be help, seen as not helpful, but note the point he's making. He suffered more than we do or will, but he realized that in comparison for what awaited, it was both slight and temporary. This slight, momentary, temporary suffering is nothing compared to what's coming. He did not say it wasn't real. There's real things that we're going to suffer. There's real things that we carry, real things that we bear. Paul bore pain and anxiety. He felt pressure and fear, but he also knew it wouldn't last. He also knew pain, anxiety, fear, and pressure may not ever leave him on this side of eternity, but he knew one day it would come to an end. This is true. This is really true deferred compensation. We've been learning that about, about finances, right? Finance is all about deferred compens- compensation of what you're storing up for the future. That's what Paul's saying about suffering. I'm storing something up for the future. And the meaning of, the, of his affliction was it, it was actually preparing him for what was to come. God is not distant. He is not unfeeling. He is not uncaring but he is faithfully, graciously, and uniquely putting us through trial to make us more and more dependent on him, to see that this world cannot satisfy, and that our greatest joy and relationship is Christ, no one else. That's why we take courage and confidence in, in keeping going. I, I'll tell you another, another hard thing about being a pastor, or being just somebody in ministry, or, or ministering to other people, is, is we want to fix people's problems. We want to fix things. And I always thought, man, if we can get in there, tell them the word, like we can fix situations and they can get better. And I'm realizing that there are absolutely some circumstances that just won't be fixed. When I sat with Nancy Davis and Nancy Davis had her 20th surgery on her rheumatoid arthritis hands and feet, you realize that there's no easy fixes here. And so God is not just trying to make life easier, he's putting us through things to teach us. But it's a little bit like this, is is we don't want to shortcut that process. It'd be like, I just taught my, uh, a few years ago, maybe a year ago, I just taught my youngest daughter, I have three daughters, I just taught her to ride a bike. We were really late in the game, like everyone else was riding a bike, she's like, I don't know, all right, let's ride it. Uh, Our older two already knew, I'm like, why don't you just pick it up by watching them, but she didn't. And, and teaching a kid to ride a bike is interesting because you knowingly are putting your kid through pain, right? Anyway, you don't know. Okay, uh, you're knowing, because part of learning to ride a bike is that, is that I have to push them, and I have to let them go at some point, and at some point they're going to fall over, and they're going to skin their knee, or, or in our case, into the wall. or the. Anyway, I'm a parent of the year. Okay, but you put them into the wall, and they get hurt, and they're crying, and you go, yeah, but if you're going to learn to ride a bike, you actually have to get back on the bike. We have to do it again. And you, your heart breaks as a dad, but you go, no, but you're going to have to learn through this pain if you're going to actually want to ride the bike. That's what God's doing. He's not taking it away. He's, he can, but he chooses to keep going so that we'll learn the lessons and move forward. And lastly, the unseen things versus the seen things. Life is hard, but listen, faith is harder. It's hard. We have to retrain our minds, and by God's grace, open our hearts to see this world differently. We have to see it differently. We have to see, we we focus on the things that we can see, we focus on the things we can understand and comprehend in the moment, and we have to retrain our thinking, saying there's things going on that are unseen, we can't see them, but they're happening, and God's doing them in our lives. We believe and put our faith in Christ because without faith, it is impossible to please God. This does not mean we have to comprehend it all or have all our questions answered or even feel better about it. It means we trust in a Jesus we cannot see because we will live eternally with him when we can. Life is hard. And your response to the hard will either underline or undermine your belief in Christ. Three and a half years ago. Uh, three and a half years ago, uh, let's see, my wife and I would have been married about 15 years. I met her here. Um, we got married. We had some hard times trying to uh, get pregnant. We have three beautiful girls uh, in three and a half years, that's what God gave us, and we're living a life that uh, is very enjoyable in Simi Valley. Three and a half years ago, uh, my wife is a little bit older than me. I won't say how many years older than me, because it's inappropriate, uh, but she's about four years older than me, <laughs> and, uh, and it'd be really inappropriate, and I'm 40, but I'm not going to say how old she is. <laughs> so three and a half years ago, healthy, uh, my wife doesn't drink at all, she doesn't, uh, she exercised, she was running, she was doing all these things, and and we had a date night, and one of our date nights was we got to go to the performance of Les Miserables that our school, with an alumni from here, Dave Carter, was in charge of, and he was putting that on at our church, and it's a normal date night. We we got coffee and snuck it into the church, because you're not allowed to have it in there, but we did anyway, I'm in charge, I guess I can do that. Uh, we s- snuck it in, and we were sitting by our friends and uh, getting re- ready for this performance, and our friend Mark Koster, who also was a graduate from here, asked my wife, hey, I heard your, s- your kids have been sick. How are they doing? And my wife looked at him, and she goes, no. I felt that way toward Mark a lot of times, but that was, seemed a little off. At that point, my wife had a stroke. She couldn't respond. We couldn't get her to blink. We couldn't get her to squeeze hands. We couldn't get her to respond at all. She started to list uh, to her left side. Immediately, uh, we had some good friends who brought a wheelchair out. They wheeled her into the nursery and uh, not knowing what was going on, uh, we called the paramedics. They came. They brought her into the hospital and she registered at a 16 out of 21 or 22 on the scale of severity of stroke. In that moment... In that moment, I wasn't sure if she was going to live or die. At that moment, she was paralyzed at one side. She couldn't speak. Uh, And I remember walking over to the hospital. The hospital was right across the street. In the meantime, the hospital the last year had become a stroke hospital. They had a neurologist on site. Isn't that amazing? I was walking over with a friend of mine and one of our fellow elders who happened to be at this performance, and we're walking through because I had just preached two weeks earlier because I had gone back to Ohio to bury my two-day-old nephew in a funeral service, and we talked about why does God allow suffering and pain, and we had just talked about it biblically, and I was walking over with my elder, and I said, here we go. And it's interesting, because in that moment, you can't really think, and what comes out of that moment, you're going, Lord, I hope it's there, because whatever's there is gonna come out. We have to prepare ourselves before, because if you try to prepare yourself in the moment, listen, when you're in the moment, and that happens, and it happens in an instant, or sometimes it happens over time, but when it happens, it's too late, and it feels too pithy to say, hey, count it all joy when you have trials. Right? Like, don't tell me that. If I'm not prepared for that beforehand, then I'm not going to see it as good in the moment. We prepare ourselves beforehand so that when the moment comes, I remember what God had stored up in my mind and heart was saying, God, if you want to take my wife home to be with you because you're her, you're her greatest joy, then do it. And somehow, through all of that, in taking her home, her joy would be made full, and somehow that would be for my greater joy. Somehow. I can't explain it, I don't know how, but but it'd be for my greater joy. You have to store up beforehand, because in the moment it would be too late to see the goodness of God in any and every circumstance. We got to the hospital, and she was given life-giving medicine. Uh, You have three hours to administer it. She got it in 45 minutes. She started to learn to talk again and walk again within a very short order. Three hours earlier, she would have been driving with my kids. Three hours later, we would have been sleeping in our bed. She would have passed away that way. Today, if you saw her, you wouldn't know anything had happened other than she walks in circles every once in a while. Just kidding. She doesn't do that. (laughs) She doesn't do that, (laughs) unintentionally. And through that, we clung to things like Psalm 56. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God, I put my trust, what can flesh do to me? You You have kept count of my tossings or my wanderings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Sometimes we're left in this life with tossings and wanderings, and that's okay. We sorrow, we have anxiety, we have fear, and yet we place our trust in God, knowing that one day he will wipe away every tear, and that there is great meaning in our suffering. There's great purpose in the heart. In C.S. Lewis's The Magician's Nephew, the main character was a boy named Diggory, and he asks Aslan to heal his dying mother. To his surprise, Aslan doesn't say yes or no, but when Diggory pleads with him again through his tears, he gets a shock. But please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure my mother? Up until then, he had been looking at the lions' great feet and huge claws on them. Now in despair, he looked up in his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life, for the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion might re- must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. One of the great comforts I take in all this, in, in life being hard, is, is a simple verse in John 11:35. John 11:35, you know it because it's only two words. It's that Jesus wept. Amen. That Jesus entered into humanity, He entered as a servant, He took the form of a servant, and yes, He came to die, yes, He came to reconcile us through His blood on the cross. He did all that, but he also came in as a man. He entered into humanity, and he knows our pain, he knows our suffering, and he knows it not as a distant God, but as a compassionate high priest. He came in at the the thought of death, of the death of his friend, who he was going to raise in a few minutes anyway. At the thought of death, he wept. Why did he weep? Because because death is reality, because death separates, but but we, we weep at death because that's what humans do. It's what humans do. So we have a great high priest who understands us. He puts us through hard to transform us, to soften us, to make us more dependent on him. He does all that because he loves us, but he's not distant in it. He has great tears in it. So how do we view hard? Do we view it as an affront to us, and where is God, or do we embrace it saying, God, you put us through hard because you love us, and I believe it, And because during the hard and in in the hard, we do not lose heart. Let's pray. So Father, thank you. Thank you for these reminders. I pray that as uh, this group of people in front of me, as they deal with the hard or will deal with the hard, that you would use the truth of the gospel, the truth of your love, the truth of your care, And it would simply underline what we already believe. That when the unexpected happens, when the suffering happens, when the persecution happens, we don't rail against it, we don't run away from it, we embrace it as you continue to transform us. Thank you that who we are in our inner man is more important than what we do. So we love you, and we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.